you know, there's a phrase from 60s advertising. It's not the steak, it's the sizzle. Have you ever heard that? I have. Okay, well, then you're old. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Did I Do That? It's a podcast about making graphic design and making mistakes because it's all part of the process. I'm Sean Schumacher, and joining me today, a very special guest out here at Bend Design in Bend, Oregon. Uh, she's an author, designer, painter, and educator. She does work across animation, product design, typeface design, and more. And her illustrations have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, Vanity Fair, and more. And her most recent book, How to Make Mistakes on Purpose, is all about the creativity that comes from making mistakes. So, like, perfect fit for this show, I would say. It's Lori Rosenwald. Hi. Hi. Welcome. Thank you for being here. You just got out here I last night. At- 3 a.m. this morning. You arrived at 3 a.m. this yes. morning. And flight went very well and very smoothly. Things went You know exception. perfectly well, Sean, <laughs> that it did not. And they, they lost my only bag, which contained my computer, what? all my clothing, and everything I need to teach my workshop. But never mind. That's not a horrible, the horrible type of thing that an airline would do. Airlines are known to be good and trusting and thoughtful and full of just helping individuals. Have you flown United? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know that I actually ever have flown to United. Um, this podcast, by the way, is sponsored by United. Is that not oh, correct? Oh, God, you're right. Oh, no. So, yeah, we better uh, we better think of some ways to, to make this story sound a little better. Um, they've got their entire Bend staff looking for your bag right now. My bag is transparent. It's rather unusual. It's that would... clear plastic. And that listed, I got somebody else's ticket or receipt or whatever you called it and it was going to some place that i'd never heard of called ontario california but let's not <laughs> let's not dwell on that it may be that my real transparent bag is on its way back to bend oregon which is i believe where i am so let's talk about um more pleasant things. Uh, yes. So you're staying downtown, and it's funny because I was downtown yesterday as soon as I got in, and I parked in the parking structure that's connected to that hotel. Not, you know, I, I have an electric car, so I you have to hunt down the stations. It's like an alternative reality game where you're trying to find something in reality to make uh, your car go. <laughs> it's really fun and not at all annoying. Um, but like right on top of that parking structure, there's a, an electric car charger. And, um, what I didn't realize when I parked there was that after a certain time of day, that parking structure becomes a Fast and the Furious movie. There's like, you know, kids who are like racing cars in the parking structure. It's very weird. Will that happen tonight? I don't know. I wonder. Um, because I'm looking for something to do. (laughs) Well, if you want to hang out with some kids who are racing cars. About what time was this? Uh, this was like six, I want to say. Um, six at night? Yeah. It's um, early. It's pretty early, but I have a suspicion. And this is something that I know the Fast and the Furious movies helmed by Vin Diesel, who himself, I believe, is in his 50s now. Um, kind of forget. But th- it's a very young scene. So young that I suspect many of the people engaged in the Fast and the Furious thing were people who had curfews. <laughs> Yeah, because it seems a bit tame. Yeah. And it it could work out for me. I'm fast, but not furious. (laughs) Can you Tokyo Drift? I don't know. What is it? It's, I'm not sure. I don't think I really took away what it was from that movie. I've never seen that movie or any movie like it. 
Really? No. What what kind of movies do you enjoy? Well, mostly television. I'm addicted to certain television shows. And in fact, I had a question for you. Yeah. There's um, one of them that I love is 30 Rock. Oh, yes. And um, there's a scene where, as a penance, somebody has to wear a shirt made out of pubic hair or... <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Or, or um, you have to say, did I do that? <laughs> Which is some kind of catchphrase on some TV show, I believe, that I've never heard of. Family Matters? Okay, I've never seen Family Matters. It's, that was the Urkel, that was the epicenter of the Urkel experience. So you have to use the Urkel catchphrase, did I do that? Or pube shirt. (laughs) So I wondered whether your podcast was named after that catchphrase it is it okay is. thank you because I mean, it's the only time i've ever heard it was on 30 rock which is one of my shows that i'm addicted to along with several others like you know obviously seinfeld curb your enthusiasm oh, things yeah. like that that's the kind of thing i like to watch i mean classics all um yeah it's funny i think this is the first time that it's actually come up the title <laughs> um but yeah like it's I think, like, you know, Urkel was the inspiration, but that was also a phrase that was just everywhere for a long time. And what I loved about it, to get back to kind of our our mutual research, is, like, it's, it's sort of about, like, um, making a mistake and then trying to deflate it a little bit, which, you know, feels like a good thing. Like, Urkel, he's a genius. He's very smart, but... If you say so. Perfect. Yeah. I don't Uh, know the guy. He, um, at one point, he invented a robot version of himself. Um, And then at another point, he invented, I believe it was a machine. Part of me thinks it might be a potion also, but I think it was a machine that turned him into a cool version of him called Stefan Urkel. Um, this is not knowledge that is useful is at that all. connected to Pilsner or Cal? <laughs> <laughs> I strongly suspect it is not mm. um although it is the kind of cool drink that Stefan or Kel might drink um and would be able to drink because I think in real life the actor who played Steve Urkel was in his mid thirties by that point. This reminds me of a Venn diagram I've been trying to create that I've had a lot of trouble with. Maybe you can help me. Yes. Um, considering the Pilsner Urkel Thirty Rock podcast connection with the pube shirt, but there's a Venn diagram in my brain with on one circle is uh, the architect I M Pei who. I think he died about two years ago. Yes, famous modernist architect. Yes, and then there's a Sharpay, the very wrinkly dog. <laughs> and then there's um, a Sharpie, you know, the marker. Yes. And then there's a harpy, <laughs> the flying bare-breasted bird. Yeah, mythological creature. Yeah. Um, maybe you can help me? Do you think so? Yes. Well, I think there's not a lot of overlap between I.M.P.E.I. and the Sharpay because they're... Well, the spelling, P-E-I. True, but I.M.P.E.I., everything very sharp edges, very geometric. Sharpay, like a Sharpie. Very much like a Sharpie. Sharpie. I think Sharpie might actually be, if we're imagining that this is like the two circles of... I.M.P.E.I. and Sharpay are on on the other side. I think 
Sharpie might be the thing in between because you can you can get really wild with it, but then you can get very precise. Indeed. Um, well, if you have, I, I don't I don't have anything to do with the thin nib sharpies. No, to me that's not a real sharpie. No one wants that. No, well, you just use a pen. I'd sooner not discuss it. <laughs> They're terrible. Do you know another thing that happened that um, caused this uh, debacle with my luggage? You're not going to believe this, or maybe you will. Tiny design flaws can make a huge difference. Yes. There was a luggage tag that I use when I live in Sweden, which I have a special Swedish phone number. And, oh. I, and I hadn't looked in. It's the kind you have to sort of open up and take apart and unfold a piece of paper to read it, yeah. which I didn't bother to do. And I thought, just to be sure, I'd better use one of those United, you know, the giveaway little paper yeah, thingies. Elastic. Yeah. yeah. No, it's not an elastic. It's oh. a thing that folds onto itself. Yeah. Uh, so I took a couple of those from the United counter while I was in San Francisco with my bag, which I was carrying onto the plane, I thought, and I was going to write my phone number on it. But guess what? It was very shiny coated paper. Oh. And I only had like a really crappy, I didn't have a Sharpie with me. I have a keychain with a mini Sharpie, but it's for my house keys that I didn't bring. So I had no Sharpie. I had a regular stupid ballpoint pen, and it did not write at all oh, on the luggage tag. So they make these shiny luggage tags that you can't write on. So I said, oh, the hell with it. It'll probably be okay. And then when I got to the plane, they said, you have to check it. It's full. And I said, I really don't want to. I want to keep it with me. They said, you can't. <laughs> so there it went with the possibly Swedish luggage tag. Who knows where off, it is now. Off to Ontario or Ontario, other... California, or possibly Gothenburg, Sweden, yeah. where I live partly. I'm choosing to imagine also that there's just like Canadians who are showing up in Ontario, California airport, just like, oh, God, this happened again. I wanted the other one. Yeah. I feel like the design of those tags and the whole way of getting them is such a mess. Like, United at least had them at the counter, it sounds like. But I feel like... Well, it's kind of an esoteric... I mean, if they have them in the counter and you can't write on them, yeah. are well, they luggage tags? It, a true Zen cone, if I've ever heard one. But like, I feel like Southwest, it's just like on the little stanchion as you're walking up and there's no place to write. So you're like holding them in your hand, trying to write on your hand. Indeed. That's not yeah. anything. That the was just one that tiny gonna... detail, but it could make a huge difference. Yeah. Uncoated paper. Yeah. It's, that's, it's, it's not cheaper that much in a lot ask. of cases. They could coat it on one side. Yeah. Yeah. C1S. That's very easy. It's, again, cheaper. <laughs> I am a professional graphic designer. I know that this can be specified. Yeah. And you would think for the run size that they're going to make on these luggage tags, they could certainly... Uh... I can't be the only one that's had this problem. No. You also do have to wonder, though, like, is that just such a bad work environment that no one can really focus? And but there, see, I don't like think there is a out? person yeah. at the end of this line. So, like many things now... Everything is just anonymous, and there's nobody to talk to about it. Yeah. But you can talk to me about anything. What should we talk about? <laughs> um, what's, what's happening with you lately? Well, let's see. I decided to give up in general. Okay. About three weeks ago, I was almost three months in Sweden, which for me is normal, Although I used to be six months a year in Sweden for 23 years. So I was living there about half the time. And um, now I didn't get a residency, a green card there. I tried mm. and I couldn't. So now I'm just 
three months maximum, like any tourist. So I had a painting studio there. I made a lot of paintings and I came back um, on August 30th or was it 31st? Anyway, the next day, September 1st, I had to hang a show, which included a lot of the paintings that I brought in my suitcase, which I did have with me. Um that I made over the summer and it was a huge uh, effort. It's a, a show called spring break and I paint in, in caustic, which is beeswax, uh, melted beeswax. It's a very ancient technique. I tell people, Ooh. you know, it's like the Fayum mummy portraits from Egypt. I say, you know, you might not like my paintings, but they will last 2000 years, whether you like them or not. So it's kind of interesting <laughs> in our ephemer ephemeral digital world to have something, you know, I paint on wood and it will last forever. Yeah. And uh, they're really good paintings. And I hung a beautiful show and it was part of the spring break show, which is kind of known to be the crazy, crazy, you know, uh, wild, uh, daring, young art fair. And oh. uh, they have it in LA they, and in New York. And, um, you know, you have to be with a curator. Anyway, it's a long story. But so I'm glad to be included in this show because I don't have a regular gallery or anything. And I've sold, not great, but I've sold three or four paintings, you know, every time I've done it. This time I sold nothing. Oh. And, the worst thing was that, you know, it was such a stress to hang the show the day after I got back from Europe and I had to paint the booth yellow. It's a whole to do. Oh, anyway, it was a lot of, you know, heavy lifting literally on my part and driving around my paintings and na na na. So I had to be there from 11 to 8 every day for six days i had nobody else to man the booth oh, it was God. my you know and and nothing came of it and then i've had a lot of um let's just say bad luck in the publishing world i realized only the other day that my book which has the wonderful title of all the wrong people have self-esteem <laughs> came out in september 2008, the week that Lehman Brothers crashed. And That's not ideal. My new book, How to Make Mistakes on Purpose, published by Hachette, came out the week that Omicron came. <laughs> so I did a major mailing of the real book, over 200 books that I mailed to important book reviewers and editors, etc. Yeah. None of them got it because nobody was in the office. Oh, God. And so it didn't get reviewed and the whole thing tanked. I'm still trying to make it be a success. And then I thought, nah, I think I'll just give up. I'll give up. I'm going to keep painting. No, listen, it's not a joke. I'm going to keep painting. I'm going to keep writing. I'm going to keep designing yeah. and drawing and doing all the things that I do. Yeah. But I'm not going to try to get anyone to notice them or see them. I'm going to stop Instagram. I'm going to stop everything I do to, you know, try to get things out in the world. I'm 67 and, you know, I've never used an emoji. Let me put it that way. I don't, I don't like doing things that other people do. By definition, I just, I just can't. I never use the word awesome. I am basically allergic to anything that's popular or successful. So 
it's probably not surprising that I haven't had much commercial success, even though I have to admit that creatively, I feel extremely successful because all of the books that I've published and all of the things that I've ever done are things that I totally believe in and are funny and beautiful and really good. Beyond that, it's out of my control, whether people notice them or like them or don't like them. I'm just going to give up trying. Well, that's, uh, I think there, there is something very meaningful to that. And I think we, 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 as a society, I think, and especially as creatives tend to lean way too hard into external validation. Like, you know, oh, it's like, I see it in my students, like, oh, I put my thing up and it's not getting enough likes. I, you know, or, or even grades. I mean, well, grades you see, are such a it's not that that's that. the byproduct now. Yeah. That is the product. Yeah. That unfortunately, you know, there's a phrase from 60s advertising. It's not the steak. It's the sizzle. Have you ever heard that? I have. Okay. Well, then you're old because it's a very <laughs> old expression, but it's very apt because, you know, I'm all steak and no sizzle. Nobody's talking about what I'm doing. Nobody cares. Uh, I'm completely outside the loop or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, now, if it's only the only thing that matters is if you have, you know, at least 100,000 uh, followers, you know, otherwise you don't really show up on the radar. Yeah. I'm not sure if radar even exists, but if you don't show up in, uh, you know, that's it's not just a question of ego, like your students wanting to be liked or people liking what they do. No, no, yeah. it's a survival yeah. because uh, art directors, creative directors, the people with the purse strings, they're looking at how many followers people have, not at what they do. Do they like the painting is completely beside the question. Yeah. Do they think that you're a good writer? It doesn't matter. How many followers do you have? That's all that matters now. And frankly, I'm sick to death of it. So I'm going to stop complaining right now. And... um you know, focus on, you know, I'm just going to keep painting and hopefully I'll be dead soon and I won't have to worry about it. Oh, God. <laughs> well, well I relatively hope you're not soon. Dead soon. I figure if I'm lucky, I got another 20 years and I don't want to spend it trying to get people to notice me. I'd rather yeah. spend it making f- cool stuff. Yeah. How much of all of our lives do we waste chasing that stuff? And like you said, there's more than we used to. More I'll than we used that. to. And, you know, like it gets valued more by people who are making decisions. So there's a, like a power element to that, like you were talking about. But like, it's not fun. And it drains the creative side, which is the thing that you're supposed to be nurturing. Yeah, I want to spend all of my energy on, you know, I, I'm I'm so lucky. I know in spite of all of these setbacks... I'm very lucky because I've managed, at least until now, to make a living, not a great living, but, you know, I keep body and soul together by teaching, which I love, by painting, by writing. I've never done jobs just for money, which 99.9% of everybody has to do, things they really do not enjoy and do not challenge them or not original, not fun I mean, I've done really original work and really, you know, surprising and daring. And I've lived all over the world and done all kinds of fun stuff and had all kinds of adventures. And, you know, I've never, I never thought about 
money, I never thought of, I mean, I don't have any children to support. And if I did, you know, they'd be barefoot and starving because I'm very selfish. (laughs) I just, I, I, on purpose, I, I didn't, you know, marry the right guy, uh, or make any of the choices that I could have made to have a family life and all that. I made choices so that I could have fun and be creative and do what I wanted and be free. And that's what I've done. And I'm still doing that. So how many people can say that? Not many. That's for sure. Yeah. So I'm, I, I think I'm lucky. Absolutely. I have, I have a pretty good life. So I'm, I'm curious, like what sort of got you into this field? What got you into your creative practice originally? Like, has this always been something that you did from childhood or? Yeah. No question about it. I mean, uh, my father was a sculptor and I come from a family that values art above pretty much everything. You know, there's basically two types of people. There's people, okay, what happens, and the reason I teach my workshop is exactly this. When you're like three, four, five, uh, you're drawing. All little kids draw, I think, even still with crayons or whatever. And why are they drawing? Just because it's fun. It's fun to draw and make your mark, right? You're not trying to solve a problem when you're three. You're just scribbling because it's fun. And then when you're seven, somebody says, that doesn't look like a dinosaur. Yeah. And then you're screwed for the rest of your life. And in some way you give up or you stop. And then that's most people. And then other people keep drawing anyway, even though it doesn't look like a dinosaur. They just like to draw and they keep drawing. So I, what I want to do is bring that feeling back. And the workshops that I teach, they really do that because the hmm. results are absolutely immaterial. The action... I always say quantity, not quality. You're not trying to make a good drawing. You're not trying to make a good anything. You're trying to do a hundred things in a hurry. And that makes a huge, huge difference in the way you feel. Your feeling is, you know, you want to keep up. I say, draw a pig, draw a cow, draw a lamp, draw a microwave or whatever it is in a hurry. And even though I sort of like to keep it a secret that we're drawing in the workshop, because I don't want people to think that my workshops are drawing workshops, Yeah, we might as well be flipping burgers. It really (laughs) doesn't matter. The fact is I use drawing as just one way of getting people to not focus on making one good thing, not focus on success or results, but just try to keep up and they make the most beautiful work you have ever seen, especially people in, you know, finance, in pharmaceuticals. I've done the workshop for Johnson and Johnson. Not one of them was an artist or designer. And they have, those are the people that have the most fun hmm. and they realize immediately nobody can see or care what they're drawing. Yeah. If they're the world's greatest artist, it's not a good day for them to show off. And if they can't draw at all and never draw, they realize in about two seconds, it doesn't matter and nobody cares, nobody's watching. And there's never a crit. I never look at the drawings again. I never say, oh, that's very, that really communicates, blah, blah, blah. You've done a great job. Or I never say, oh, that's not really not working. I don't say anything. It's just make a lot of stuff. And then you ask, it's a little bit like the, your podcast in that the question is um, not, did I do that? But in a way it's similar because the question you ask is, oh, what could this be? So 
there's a big, big difference between the question, oh no, what am I going to do? Which is where you end up when you have problem solving, which is fine, but very stressful. And you have something in front of you already, it's already done. And you go, oh, what could this be? It's positive. So what happens in my workshop is the opposite of problem solving, because what happens with problem solving is, you know, like as an illustrator, I would get some brief from an art director at magazines, which are these paper sort of booklet things that people used to read. <laughs> I've heard uh, of them. Yeah, they were very popular back in the day. And I, I think uh, I read a BuzzFeed article. Most of my clients them. were magazines and they would say, Oh, we need, you know, a portrait of blah blah or um, you know, um the five basic food groups or something. And you know, whatever it was, you would think if you're somebody like me who's a very judgmental what should I say? C word. Uh, <laughs> you you can um, swear if you need to. No, I, I prefer not to because it's so popular. I don't. I don't. I don't use profanity in any of my books because it's too common. Yeah. Anyway, um, I'm a very judgmental person and very critical and very negative. So I think that most people are stupid, including most of the art directors I've ever worked for. Um, and the assignments are stupid and everything's stupid. So that's a very sad and lonely place to be. But when I, you know, look at the brief and I go, oh, you know, the 21st century mom, she has a tattoo and she eats organic fruit. And I'm rolling my eyes thinking this is what I have to draw. But instead of that, I have a scribble. I have a texture. I have a face. I have a foot or a hand or something and I can start with that. So I'm never alone with a blank piece of paper or a blank screen. So that's where my workshop comes in. So rather than you having a brief and then your brain and a blank screen, you have in front of you a zillion drawings already made. And you can choose one or two and use them as a starting point. It's super practical. And say, oh, this could be her hair, or this could be her leg, or this could be her shopping bag. Oh. And then you can go from there. You go, oh, what could this be? Yeah. It's like the guy that invented Velcro. He went walking in the woods. He got burrs stuck on his pants. He picked them up. He was playing with them. And, oh, what could this be? And then he invented Velcro. But what he didn't do was sit in a white laboratory with everything perfect and think, what the world needs is a new way to stick stuff together. <laughs> And I'm going to be creative now and invent that. See, yeah. that's the problem with problem solving. It's the kiss of death to try to do a good thing for me. Because I invented this workshop because I'm so insecure. Um, I felt like, you know, in spite of the fact that I've been drawing all my life, every time I got a brief or an assignment, I was moody and cranky. And I thought, you know... <sighs> This is stupid. You know, I was just like yeah. that. So I needed um, a starting point. And then I was okay. And I worked like that my whole career, 30, 40 years, whatever it's been. Uh, but I didn't tell my clients I was doing that. There was no need to. It was just something personal that got me away from my own insecurities and my own feelings of, you know, I'm not good at drawing or this is the type of thing I'm not good at drawing or uh, 
the art director's an idiot. Why do I have to do this? You know, whatever. <laughs> Instead of all that, yeah. I had a whole, like, it's like walking into, like, you're a chef and you walk into the perfect pantry and there's every possible fruit, vegetable, meat and fish and condiments and seasonings and herbs. And you can have all of them. They're right there and they're all free and they're all there. It's a really great feeling, right? Absolutely. You can make anything. So that's, that's the, the feeling that I like people to have. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's so meaningful to get to give it to people who are just, you know, they're constantly in that problem solving mode in the best case scenario, but more than likely are just pushing papers around trying to push them on to the next functionary who also does a job that doesn't need to exist. You know, that's, God, that sounds tragic. And that's why I feel very lucky because I've managed to avoid having to do jobs like that. For me, it's always been the same, you know, whether I'm painting or doing something with typography or graphic design, it's something that I deeply, deeply love and I'm really engaged in and there's nothing I'd rather do. Yeah. So it's a real fantastic thing to be able to spend your life doing something that you really enjoy, whatever it is. Yeah. Like what got you into design specifically? Like was that like your college major or well that's funny that you asked i always joke with the same joke i'm sorry to repeat it but um people have heard my jokes over and over again so <laughs> yeah, but that, that. that doesn't give me an excuse <laughs> but i always say i'm 67 and i still haven't picked a major <laughs> what happened to me at RISD? it was really difficult you know, you were supposed to, you know, at this young age, choose a major. And I chose at first graphic design because I didn't really know what graphic design was, but I loved letters and typography. And I'd been looking at a lot of, you know, Russian constructivist books and Dada typography. And, you know, I just thought it was cool and beautiful. And I love letter forms. Yeah. And I also love words and love to write and respect writing and um, I'm a grammar and spelling nerd too. So it all sort of fit together. So I went into graphic design, but this was the seventies and, you know, around, I guess this was 74, 75. And uh, at that time in the graphic design department at RISD, Rhode Island School of Design, um, it was the Swiss style, which was originally from the Bauhaus yeah. through Basel, Switzerland. And it was extremely dry and extremely academic. And everybody was using universe typeface only and, you know, very grainy black and white photographs if they had any images. But it was very intellectual and academic. And there was no color. There was no humor. Uh, there was nothing fun about it. And I missed drawing. So I went into the illustration department. I, I transferred out and went into illustration. Oh. And there, un unfortunately... It was doing like children's book stuff that was like cutesy, and they didn't understand why I had to have type in every drawing. <laughs> and they got mad at me. You know, after, I don't know, two months or something, uh, I decided to go back to the graphic design department and say, look, I made a mistake. I want to go back to graphic design. So I spoke to the head of the department, and he said, well, you have to take an extra year. Oh. And I said, well, it's not like a bridge is going to fall on somebody's head. It's not like engineering. You know, if I miss two months, you know. <laughs> It's only design. And then he got really mad and he said, now you can't come back at all. 
So I went into painting. Wow. So I effectively got kicked out of graphic design. But in real life, I got the education that I needed because I do illustration, I do graphic design, and I do painting. Yeah. But I really sort of consider myself self-taught, mostly from old dusty books. Because, you know, in the painting department at RISD, they basically gave you a studio and left you alone, which was fine with me. But, you know, I always use typography in my painting and painting in my typography, if you want to put it that way. Um, To me, there's a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say overlap, but one thing sort of helps the other. And, you know, I have paintings that are purely typographical, and then I also do portraits. Um... That's the whole point of being any kind of artist uh, or any kind of creative is that here you are in a situation, whatever else is going on in your life, doesn't matter. You're free. Here is where you're free, you know, and um, you you can – in fact, uh, I did a painting, and this made a big impression on me. I did a painting once. I live in Sweden part-time in Gothenburg, Sweden. It's a big port city. But there's a big crane, and it's beautiful. It's orange. And I, oh. I did a painting of the crane and the word Jutteborg, which is Gothenburg in Swedish. Uh, and I made this big oil painting, really, really big, that looked like basically uh, like a poster. And somebody said, why are you making a big poster for Gothenburg? And I said, well, why not? That's what I felt like doing. Yeah. I love the city. I love the typography of the words. I love the umlaut over the O. I liked all of it, and I made a painting. Why shouldn't I make a painting that looks like a poster? Sounds great to me. Yeah. I'm very into it. So get lost, you know. (laughs) Leave me alone. Yeah. I'm free to do that, and you don't have to like it, but um, that's that's a good reason to do things because you like it. People forget that. Yeah. People think you need a reason for everything, but because you like it is a perfectly good one. What also really upsets me is that, um, you know, I would like, well, no, I would, no that's a lie. I was going to say a lie. I was going to say that I would like to be the kind of person, um, you know, that wants to change the world and they devote themselves to helping, you know, cure the planet and everybody in it. Uh, I'm not that person. I'm basically an entertainer. I want to have fun and I want other people to have fun. And I think that's why I'm here. Hmm. And maybe that's not as valuable as somebody that's trying to cure a disease or end world hunger or address climate change in their work. But hopefully there's still some value in what I do. I think there is. I mean, if you want to see the film Sullivan's Travels, it'll tell you everything. It's a Preston Sturgis film. And the moral of that film is uh, making a comedy is a worthwhile thing to do. Yeah. And I believe that with all my heart. And so what, you know, I mean, it starts out with this director and during the Depression that wants to make the film called Oh Brother, Where, Where Art Thou? about the homeless all of the millions of homeless during the horrible depression. And he wants to make the film by experiencing that for himself, a very serious documentary. And he ends up by making a comedy because he realizes that making that documentary about what everybody's going through, is not really helping, you know, and, and that he 
who is a rich film director doesn't really have the right to do that in a way. And I think yeah. that what I do is important. Yeah. Because in my writing, hopefully, my books are funny and make people laugh. So I think that's valuable. And I, even if I'm the only one, I think my paintings are beautiful. And so that brings something to the world. So, hey, maybe it's not enough or maybe I'm wrong, but I'm not good at the other stuff. And in fact, um, I've run into a lot of trouble because of this, because my recent book, How to Make Mistakes on Purpose, which has always been the title of my workshop for over that I've taught for over 30 years all over the world, How to Make Mistakes on Purpose. But I make the book, and because it has how-to in the title, the publisher seemed to think it was some kind of a self-help book. Oh. And my oh, next book, listen to this, my next book, no matter what it is, no matter what it's about, and of course I am writing one, the title is going to be called I Don't Want to Help Anybody. <laughs> Just to be really clear. Because I think what's happened is that every book has to be a self-help book. Yeah. Right? Like, every book in the whole world. It's treated like that's the only a genre that sells. Yeah. You know, you can't – a self-help, you know, sexy book. It's got to be – Everything is a is is a problem to be solved, and you're yeah. going to solve it. You know, it just come on. If I really thought that, I just hang up my whatever right now. I, I just no, my workshop actually does help people be creative. Yeah, but that's not you know. <laughs> well, I don't want to make a thing out of that. And I don't want people to think it's some kind of, you know, esoteric thing or uh, it's a very practical way to never be alone with a blank brain or a blank piece of paper and to get started making new things and discovering new things um, and doing things that you don't normally do, Uh, you know, and to surprise yourself and to surprise other people. Yeah. And I think, yes, that's helpful. But. Believe it or not, this is how oh, – I can't even say it. Well, the publisher who shall remain nameless, Hachette. <laughs> um, Hachette, my nameless publisher, put my <laughs> audiobook version of How to Make Mistakes on Purpose – this is true. You can Google it – under parenting. <laughs> I am a childless spinster. If there's anything I don't know about, what? it's parenting. <laughs> what? Uh, now, I, swear I to God. realize that the publishing industry is not well, but that's parenting. There's no logic that that could ever be likely. Totally true. <laughs> what the you could look it up. I'll send you the link. I would, I would love to see. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Wow. Um yeah, that. But I mean, I feel like though this part of this might be what goes back to like you know where this like weird culture came from. This culture of like your job is your life, and like I think that's that's where some of this kind of stems from. Like that culture has popped up right at the same time as every company is just cutting themselves to the barest minimum, and 
it passed the barest minimum so that nobody is really paying attention to anything anymore because they can't they're doing you know they're they're printing out the the airline tag that's coded on both sides so you can't actually write on it they're classifying your audiobook as parenting uh and self-help <laughs> separately it's weird that it would genre jump uh the the audiobook too and my my editor <laughs> my editor at Hachette, and I quote, said, why would your book be in a museum bookstore? It's a book about creativity. <laughs> where where were they wanting to put it? <laughs> they, I think they wanted to just flush it down the toilet. Oh, God. What they do, what, what publishers do, because we live in this desperate situation, especially with books, yeah. but with every industry that's failing – like books and magazines and you name it, um, anything interesting really yeah. is struggling. Uh, they publish, you know, if they publish a hundred books or a thousand books, they hope one will hit, be a huge bestseller, and the rest can go hang. Yeah. You know, and that's the truth. And they're they're just it's just a, you know, they're tossing out a net. They don't know. They there's no personal relationship between writers and editors. I mean, of course, at the very top levels you know if you're stephen king or something it's different but if you're not if you're it's it's really um it's never been easy to be a writer or an artist and get noticed and who needs it you know there's yeah. no question the world doesn't owe me a living um but it just there's something that the internet i think accelerated uh made a greater division between those that were seen and those who are not seen um it's very hard to find a way, and I would like to find a way to completely bypass uh, social media and the internet completely and go back in time, but uh, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, but I kind of wish it could happen. God, because, me too. You know, in fact, I know a, a, a young woman, uh, she's so lovely and she has the best smile I've ever seen. She's the daughter of some friends of mine in Philadelphia. Um, her name is Neva. I'm going to say it just in case. I'm going to send her this. Uh, and she was, you know, she's 20-something. She was looking for a waitress job in New York. She'd moved there from Philadelphia. She's a dancer. And uh, she was telling me that, you know, just to get a waitress job, you had to apply online and with forms and, you know, oh, like you have to do whole, everything with a form. It's a whole a form, performance. Right. Yeah, and I said, it's ridiculous. Oh, come on. Walk in to a restaurant and smile at them. Yeah. And that's exactly what she did. And she got a great job, you know, but she had this incredible, but you can't email that. Um, like I said, I'm giving up, but what I'm giving up is trying so hard to get noticed. Uh, cause I have been trying hard, whether with my books or with everything else, uh, to get my, you know, I'd love to hold my workshops, you know, big workshops for Google and Apple and, and, you know, make lots of money with big corporations inviting me. So what I'm not going to stop is making art and making books and making stuff. Um, and even, you know, like, like my next book, this, this memoir, I've been, this was the original what I wanted to publish with Hachette, um, which is really, really good and really, really funny. Um, and, you know, maybe I'll have this Swedish publisher do it that, you know, all their other books are in Swedish and it's a tiny, tiny publisher in a tiny, tiny country. 
okay, it's great, great. It's the opposite of Hachette, which is the third biggest publisher in the world, you know, which didn't do me any favors. I thought at first, oh, now I've hit the big time, I thought, you know, but I'd rather go with a smaller publisher and um, maybe an infinitesimally small one, you know, (laughs) I'm going to do the opposite, like George and Seinfeld. I'm going to do the opposite. Full on zine next time, self-published. Exactly. I mean that that's kind of I, there's something beautiful to that though like because then you're fully in control you don't have to worry about editors you don't have to worry yeah. about yeah. you know like marketing budgets or something there or, is no budget no no <laughs> it's like it's print on demand so like yeah. you don't have to worry yeah. about like what size the press run's going to be or anything like that like so we'll see but the but the book that's out now the mistakes on purpose book I'm really really proud of yes. and during this thing at Bend. Um, everybody's that's doing the workshop is going to get a copy, which is great. And, um, you know, I'm going to give away some signed copies, but I really love this book. So I am it's... sad that, you know, it didn't sell more. And I hope that if you, if you've made it this far in the podcast, you really should get it. It's How to really make funny. On purpose. It's really fun book. It's, and, and, um, you know, I promise, uh, uh, like I said, I don't want to help anybody. It's not a self-help book, but it's a really funny book, and I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah, I, I, I picked it up, and I, like, it's it's a really easy read. It's really, like, you know, it's it's really, whether you're new to design or... And there's a lot like, of nudity in it. <laughs> <laughs> I just... You know, and recipes, recipes, nudity. Um, <laughs> what more could you want? Yeah, I mean, just like it, it should be flying off the shelves by all accounts. There are no shelves anymore. No, that's sort of the problem. <laughs> um, have you like been in like a Barnes and Noble or anything lately? Because I think uh, that's also part of this problem. Yeah, absolutely. It's all like figurines and stuff. <laughs> I know. There's no book. Really you know weird. what's funny? What my other book, the All the Wrong People Have Self-Esteem, which was a young adult book, the subtitle is an inappropriate book for young ladies or anybody else. Uh, (laughs) But uh, there was actually a wonderful editor at Bloomsbury that asked me to do the book because I'd done another book for Chronicle called New York Notebook, and she liked the way it looked, and she thought it would be great for me to do a teenage book, so I did. And that was a really fun book, but nobody knew where that belonged, including me. Like when I wrote it, when I did it, I wasn't thinking about the first question that anybody asked now is what's the audience? It was a question that never crossed my mind. I did the most funny, best looking book I could imagine doing what I thought was a wonderful book. I didn't care, you know, or think about you know it that to me that seems backwards to think about the audience first and then try to please them it's just yeah. it seems backwards anyway so i did this book and it literally didn't fit on the shelf because that year it was 2008 the same week the lehman brothers crashed but it didn't fit on the shelves at barnes and noble because the shelves there were made for gossip girl which that <laughs> year was a huge in the young adult, that's basically all they sold. So the shelves were designed, and my book wow. was like, you know, 11 inches tall. It was like, oh, is this an art book? Is this a humor book? Is this a teenage book? Is this a self? Because it had self esteem in the title. People thought that was a self help book. Oh, God. 
I know. So the judging of the book by its cover, it's sort of a across the board problem. It's a toughie. Yeah. It's it's, it's really the bookstores that are. <laughs> but I'm telling <laughs> doing you, my next book job of it. Title, my next book titled "I Don't Want to Help Anybody." <laughs> That's going to solve that problem. That's going to nip it right in the bud. Yes. Um, go go out and find <laughs> I Don't Want to Help Anybody. We're not going to help you find it. you got to look no, for it exactly. yourself. Um, <laughs> I I love that title so much. It's it's really a delight. But like a lot of a lot of your focus is on at least in the, the, the book making mistakes mm-hmm. um, like what. Like what sort of drew you to that as a subject other than like wanting to open it up? Well, it wasn't like drawing me as a sub. It was more like this. Like uh, 35 years ago, I was teaching this class at Camberwell, which is a really good art school in London. And just for fun, because I was sort of bored myself, I had them just draw as fast as they could, as much stuff as they could, and just using black and white. And it sort of evolved from that class doing these workshops where I was getting the participants, the students, whoever, to work uh, in a way, the way that I've been working, which was rather than, uh, like I said, trying to make one good thing, just having like a pantry or an arsenal or a resource of a zillion drawings of stuff, all kinds of stuff, numbers, letters, textures, pictures of animals and people and every possible object right there so that you could already have one to start with. I'd been doing that for years, but I'd never taught that way. So that class in Camberwell led to me doing workshops, which I've done in Italy and Sweden and Germany and all over. And like I said, for 35 years, so I teach, you know, it depends, maybe eight workshops a year or 10 or whatever it is. And sometimes there's 20 people, sometimes there's 200 people, sometimes I get paid a whole lot and it's a big corporation, sometimes it's a little art school, it's all over the map, you know. But they all have in common that, you know, it's a really about a way of, it's a modus operandi, it's not a drawing class, it's not a graphic design class. It's about a way of thinking uh, that is different from the normal problem solving, which I'm not against. You have to do problem solving. Problem solving is going to be always 99% of everything. But this is just one day in your life where you do it a different way. You have a different approach. You learn a different way of doing something that is not problem solving. It is creating an arsenal that will help you with whatever job you have to do. And in fact... I have a really good example that for, I don't know, it was about, I don't know, 15 years ago, there was a, there was a radio show, Studio 360, with Kurt Anderson. Oh, yeah. On PRI. Yeah. So Kurt Anderson was the MC at this AIGA event that I was teaching the workshop, and he took the workshop, and he enjoyed it and thought it was great. So he invited me to do it for his staff at the radio. And I at first thought it was going to be on the radio, and it's a totally visual thing, so I thought, that's interesting. But anyway, but we did this. An inherently flawed idea, some might say. His producer called me like a week before I was going to go in and do this, and so he was saying, you know, he asked me a bunch of questions on the phone, and he said, back then people made phone calls. So um, (laughs) he asked me... um, all kinds of questions, and then he said, um, well, what if you're not 
like an artist or a designer? How is this helpful or what's the point if you're not in that world? And and I said, well, let's say you're a radio producer. So he says, oh, okay, I'm listening because he's a radio producer. And I say, well, part of your job apparently is to ask me, Laurie Rosenwald, you know, what's going to happen when you come in with this workshop thing and what's the point of da 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 and I said, but let's say, and those are all good questions. You could ask me, you know, that's problem solving. You could ask me, where did you go to school? Or how did you come up with the idea for the workshop? Or many good questions. That's problem solving. And that's yeah. not going anywhere. That's a good thing. But let's say just for one question, you pick up something that's on your desk and let that be the question, yes. a random thing. Random is the key word. And I said, I'm going to do that now. So I reached over on my desk and I had a novel I was reading and I opened it to a random page. And the first two words on the top left corner were gold bullion, like, you know, gold bars of gold. Yeah. Right? So I said, okay, Lori, um, are you raking in the big bucks doing this for corporate offsites and, you know, stuff like that? Or is this like more of an art school thing or, you know, now... That might not be a great question, but it is probably a question he wouldn't have asked. Yeah. And that is, well, gold. That is valuable to do something you don't do, to ask the question you don't ask, to make the thing you don't make or whatever, to jolt you. It's literally uh, sabotage. You know, the word sabotage was throwing a shoe into the machine. The sabot is, that's the, what it is, that you need to... To get somewhere new, it requires that, that you mess it, mess something up yeah. and uh, you bring in an element of randomness and chance. And especially in our digital world where everything is so perfect and people are really good at their jobs and they get really good at certain programs and their expertise is boundless. But what happens is that's good when you're 20 or maybe 30 or 40 even, but when you're 50 or 60 or maybe 40, 50, and you've been doing the same job and being really good at it for all these years, what new thing have you discovered? Yeah. You have to do something that it's not really the word. I use the word mistake because it's fun. It's not really a mistake. You have to do something random. You have to sabotage your own skill set and your own way of thinking. And that is my job. That's what I do in my workshops is to bring in the random for people in a digital perfect world where people are good at their jobs that you know, you want to please your boss or your teacher, whoever it is, that's fine. But if you repeat that over and over and over, over a number of years, it becomes pretty stale and you don't get anywhere new. Yeah. So that's the point of the workshop. Yeah, you fall it's into It's a patterns. way of bringing in something that'll change, could change everything. Yeah. Or maybe nothing. You might not discover anything, but if you keep doing exactly the same thing the same way your whole career, you definitely won't. <laughs> right? That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. So this is at least gives you a chance to make a, dis you know, like penicillin was dirty dishes. You know, big people working in big pharma are not experiencing this now. No. You know, what Fleming did was he went literally on vacation for two weeks and left some stuff in the sink. And these Petri dishes got all moldy and one mold was resisting the other mold. And he noticed this when he came back because he was a problem solver and he was trained to understand and notice things. He was a scientist, you know, it wasn't just anybody. And he said, huh, that's it. What could this be? And it was penicillin that saved zillions of lives. So I think we need to bring back at least the chance 
for something messed up and mistakey yeah. or random to help us. I completely agree with that. And I like that element of chaos is such a great creative fuel. Like you need something outside of yourself sometimes that just pushes you in a direction. Yeah. And sometimes that's a restriction, but sometimes it's just like, yeah, because we all, input. it's very human to go with what is familiar and comfortable, including me. I mean, I'm, I'm just like everybody else. I'm no different. I realized that, you know, I needed to shake things up, you know, because yeah. if left to my own devices, I'll just sit on a sofa watching Seinfeld for the rest of my life and do nothing. It's great, I mean, though. it's really, really <laughs> nice, you know. What's not to like? I, I sounds like a dream to me, honestly. <laughs> just hanging out in Sweden watching Seinfeld. Exactly. Oh, I'm there now. <laughs> Um, this sounds like an incredible workshop. You're doing one here at Ben Design. Yep. Um, if people potentially have a place that could host a workshop, mm -hmm. where would they go to kind of uh, contact you? And sign they up would for? contact me at my website, which is not my last name. My name's Lori Rosenwald, but my workshop and everything else is listed on Rosenworld, R O S E N W O R L D dot com. And they could reach me through that and find out about the workshop through that. And I hope that they do, in fact. Yes. And that's also a great place to go if you want to find out more about Lori's books. You can probably find How to Make Mistakes on Purpose potentially in your local bookstore. I know I found mine in Powell's uh, here in oh, Portland. Good. But that's a great bookstore. It's a I mean, I've been hard there. to hard yeah. to beat that as a bookstore. Love Powell's, but you know, if you're not so lucky to to have a, you can definitely get it online. You can certainly get it online. It will be in a different section depending on if you're looking for an audiobook <laughs> or uh, or or traditional book. But you know, look around. Type it into the search field. I find that's a good way to find specific things. Oh, is there anything else that you'd want to plug? Well, yeah, in a way, I'm looking for the right editor, and that editor will find me the right publisher. Somebody that thinks that the way that I write is funny and gets it. That is what I'm hoping to find, because yeah. um, I frankly would rather go the traditional route, but with a smaller publisher for my next book, which is written and designed and all ready to go. Oh, shit. So that's something I would re really like to find out, you know, so... Yeah. Um, I was looking actually in, in the UK for the right publisher because all of the writers that I love are British, or not all, but most. And, you know, I always say that P.G. Woodhouse is my therapist. So that <laughs> might explain a lot, but um, I, I think that is what's very important to me is my next book, which is called Memoir, spelled M-E-M-W-A-H, <laughs> which may be a bad idea. Because, you know, it's a New Yorkie, you know, I'm a New York Jew, memoir, but not everybody gets it when they see it written down. Uh, like, for instance, my friends in Sweden that per speak perfect English, they look at it, it means absolutely nothing. So I'm not so sure that's the right title, but I'm looking for the kind of editor that will tell me, yes, that's a great idea or no, forget it. And um, somebody that I can listen to. Yeah, if there's if there's <laughs> editors out here listening to this, and you wanna you wanna help make this book a reality, put it out in the world. I would love that a lot. Um, I actually also think this is very ambitious, but don't you think? Well, this is a loaded question, but don't you think? 
that How to Make Mistakes on Purpose would be a great TV show? I think so. Absolutely. I do, too. I think that it opens up a whole world of possibilities. Yeah. I mean, I don't want it to be like a cooking show. I don't like reality TV. Well, I want a scripted thing, but based on people's stories and experiences about mistakes that changed things that made, you know, there's so many great stories, not only in terms of scientific discovery, you know, like everybody knows about post-it notes and Velcro and penicillin, but there's a zillion other stories that people have about mistakes that are so entertaining and so much fun. So I would love to do a show about that too. Yes. And I, you know, I, I think there needs to be more, more humor and creativity combined in media just generally which i think probably the audience for this You're show already tootin'. knows <laughs> <laughs> um well thank you so much for for being here laurie um, it was a great pleasure i really appreciated it um and thank you to the person who's listening to this hi thank you if you like this show and and I don't know. Maybe you're hearing it for the first time. Maybe you're a longtime listener, first time caller, or, or some other thing. Why not subscribe to it in your podcast player of choice? That's a great way to make sure that you receive it. Um, you can uh, get to so very many of them. And God, there's so many of them out there by visiting our, our pretty new website, did I do that dot design. And that's also where you can find some good, good images that go along with each and every episode, which I think are. I think they're funny. I think they're funny. This sounds defensive the way that I'm saying it, but no one is no one is disputing it. Um, and if you want these images delivered to you on a platform that, uh, let's say, is is it seems like it's increasingly antagonistic towards me. But in fairness, I'm increasingly antagonistic towards it. You can follow me on Instagram or Twitter. And uh, again, you can get to both of those from the website. This is Did I Do That? I am Sean Schumacher. And as we always say at the close of every episode. Rutabaga? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Rutabaga. Okay. Bye. <laughs> I'll give you a level real quick. I don't mind. See? Isn't it though? That At looks, least I do one thing. That's perfectly. a perfect level. <laughs> Exceptional. My level. levels are impeccable. You can't, you can't beat those levels. Yeah. Right? Your baggage gets lost, but you cannot beat those levels. These are top tier levels.